called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Thanks, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today I am very happy to have with us an old friend. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins us again. And uh, Jamie, I, I thank you for coming. And I'm going to ask you, just ask the question, are we going to impeach Donald Trump? Well, first, thank you for having me. Thanks for and, being had. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't be shy. Just plunge right in there, Brian, with your <laughs> questions, man. Um, <laughs> Well, well, that's the show. Just ask the question. Look, nobody nobody knows where this thing is going. It could go in a lot of directions. And, you know, the standard for impeachment is high crimes and misdemeanors. And there are certainly serious allegations of those. Uh, I like to think that all of those who have taken an oath of office uh, take seriously um, the rule of law and that we have to um, deal in a solemn way with threats to the rule of law, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and corruption. Um, and these are the categories of things we're looking at. And the Judiciary Committee has um, uh, issued more than 80 document requests to try to find out what's been going on in the administration on a whole series of things, from uh, emoluments clause and foreign payments to uh, campaign finance violations and hush money cover-up payments to uh, abuse of the security clearance process. The Oversight Committee is undertaking similar kinds of inquiries, and um, uh, nobody knows right now where it's going to all lead to. Well, I guess my question is more of a, a political one than a, than a and strategy, I guess, because is it worth the Democrats' time and effort to try and impeach him knowing full well that the Senate probably will not convict? Or does it behoove the Democrats to find someone they can get behind and vote the guy out of office and then prosecute him after that? Well, the, obviously the, um, the political track um, needs to be worked as quickly as possible. And there are obviously dozens of people now running for president. And Literally dozens. Um, dozens of people. And, and our party is getting engaged in the process of thinking about replacing the Republican president in 2020, whether it's Donald Trump or Mike Pence or anybody else. And we, we need to go out and win that election. You know, the, the question of high crimes and misdemeanors of the president or the 25th Amendment on fitness of the president to serve are analytically distinct from... Um, who do we want to put into office right. in 2020? And uh, but isn't I, it a matter of energy? Well, and then, absolutely. And everything in politics is a, is a trade-off. And so, where's our energy going to go? Where's our attention going to go? What are we going to focus on? But look, um, leaving impeachment aside, we've got uh, a serious constitutional oversight duty to the American people, which we intend to. Uh, execute and to vindicate. So, um, you know, those are things that we need to be checking out. Obviously, the Mueller report hasn't come back yet. Those prosecutions um, are still underway. And we have a lot more information 
to find out about. And we have a lot of abuses of power that we need to correct. Um, so we're committed to doing that. And, you know, for me, impeachment should, should be neither a fetish nor a taboo. Nobody should be obsessed with it. It's not the be-all and the end-all in any way. Nancy but, Pelosi said, don't do it. But it shouldn't be a taboo either because okay. we've got to think about not just this moment in history, but about the future. And um, if the president has engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors and uh, offenses against the republic that really undermine the basic rule of law and our basic constitutional commitments, um, I, we have to look very seriously at that because we, we can't send the message to future presidents that you can use the presidency of the United States as a plaything. You can convert the U.S. government into a money-making enterprise. You can soak the whole uh, capital in corruption and lawlessness. Um, that's not acceptable. And, you know, we, we need to maintain yeah, our constitutional we, standards. We <laughs> impeached President Clinton over lying about fellatio. Yeah. This guy has a track record of real criminal activity yeah. that has to be investigated. That's far more serious than a, a sexual peccadillo. Well, one thing we know is that we are not going to sink to the GOP standard of impeachment, which is you can impeach the president of the United States and uh, absorb everybody's energy and attention for a year or two years over uh, private misconduct. Right. Um, and so... You know, obviously everybody knows there's no shortage of private misconduct. Uh, Just this, this morning on the South Lawn, there was that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we are overlooking all the private uh, sexual misconduct of the president, unless it rises to the level of a conspiracy to violate the campaign finance right. laws, unless it you know gets us into other forms of official public corruption and so on. But what we're really looking at is... Uh, offenses that undermine the integrity of the republic. And I, I, I guess uh, that I want to touch on that because I had a very uh, illuminating conversation with one of my nephews and went home for my mother's 81st birthday. And, and so we're sitting there talking and I was talking to my 28-year-old nephew who says he fears for not he fears whether or not there will be a future. Will humanity survive? He looks as he looks at Trump and thinks it's like you know this is game over, and um, he'll do anything to stay in office. And he'll twist and he'll turn. He'll become a despot. He'll become you know a, a basically a, a wants to be a Caesar or a Hitler. And and at that point in time, boom, we end it all. Yeah. And and he says that's why friends of his they don't even want to have kids because they're afraid such a horrible, and I don't want to say apocalyptic or Armageddon, but, but something, a defining moment like that is in our offing because of this president. Right. That's frightening to me that they think well, that, that young people think that way. You know, while the president is tweeting and insulting and taunting and engaging in all of these uh, juvenile antics, um, the overarching emergency of the times, climate change goes completely ignored. He pulls us out of the Paris Climate Accord. He denies the existence of climate change, and he tries to uh, sandbag the scientists and the agencies that are engaged in trying to deal with the problem. So I know that there's a great sense of uh, apocalyptic gloom and doom among the millennials. Um, you know, I've got three of them in my family 
that they understand that things are falling apart. And um, we have a, a president who at least acts as though he's completely divorced from reality and deranged. I don't think that's an act. Yeah. I don't think that's an act. Yeah. I've been close to the guy. I got to tell you, I what what I'm fearful of is I and I said this last night on, on, on CNN and they asked me, you're close to him, you talk to him. And I said, I get the feeling that having covered him for two and a half years now, that his reality is based on what he thinks at the moment. Facts be damned. And if he thinks something different because he ate a cheeseburger, then that new thought he has is reality. And I think it's because he's been, and, and please correct me, And I mean, you're in government, you know this probably far better than I do, but when I sit down and, and talk to him, he's been a man who's never had to buy a thing, a man of leisure, a man of pleasure, a man in the upper 1%. So he's used to people doing his bidding, and he's so used to creating his own reality that I think he's he's trying to create one for us that has no consequences for him. He's the good guy, and if you oppose him, you're the bad guy. That life of privilege, I think, yeah. has destroyed his sense of reality. Well, you're describing an extreme form of narcissistic personality disorder where the whole world revolves around him and... Uh, his judgments and his feelings are the only things that, that matter. And there are psych psychiatrists and psychologists who share your perception of the situation. A lot of them will add in that there is an antisocial personality disorder too because he actually gains some pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. I mean, he can be a, a vicious bully when he oh, wants yeah. to be. And so what you've got is the possibility of a malignant narcissistic personality disorder. It's a dangerous condition. Um, but look, I mean, uh, I'm, not in, love him. I'm not in the psychology business. Neither and, am I. And, yeah. and, and we're not in the psychology business. But as citizens, we've got to be attentive to the public consequences of people's private conduct and their personal conduct. And of course, there's nobody in the country whose conduct is more public in character than that of the president. Um, Every motion, every action, every business deal, every tweet, every <laughs> confrontation not every tweet. <laughs> is something that translates into an event of public consequence. Um, so you sat in on the, you, were, you asked some of the, I thought, more cogent questions. And I thought there were some very good questions asked during the Cohen hearing. Well, how did he strike you? He is a, he's a, a bit of a narcissist and, and a convicted liar. Yeah. So how did you... How did you take his testimony? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, of course, the, the whole Republican attack on him was based on the idea that he was uh, a convicted liar and he's going off to prison for lying to Congress on behalf of President Trump. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, what, what, I, what I told him was, I said, hey, you know, we appreciate your coming today and understand the Republicans are not mad at you because you lied to Congress about... Uh, for the president. They're mad at you because you stopped lying to Congress for the president. Um, and they wouldn't be mad at him if he was just, you know, still, um, you know, still in the bag for the president out there <laughs> right. lying for him the way all of their other heroes are doing. So, um, look, my sense of Michael Cohen is he's like a refugee from an organized crime family. He's broken free of the boss. Um, he seemed unburdened and liberated by the experience. 
He seemed completely believable in the things that he was saying. He has no incentive to lie at this point. In fact, he has an incentive not to lie because if he does lie um, under oath again the way he did for the president, then it could hurt him in terms of his uh, his sentence and how much time he spends in, in prison. You, you did. You said something to me in the hall uh, in the break th that day, and you said I people were comparing it to a John Dean moment. And I don't remember if it was you who said it was more like a Joe Valachi moment, but you said it was a, it was more like a crime, a, a mob. It, it was all the terminology that sounded like a mob family more than uh, yeah. a, a... And you know, he's not the first witness who's described that to us. I mean, I mean, you know, that's um, all over James Comey's book too, where he said when he yeah. first met Donald Trump, he was just overwhelmed by the comparison to mob bosses because everything was about undivided absolute loyalty to him. The loyalty never moved in the other direction. He didn't show any loyalty to anybody else, but he wanted to know that there was going to be undivided personal loyalty from the FBI director to the president. And of course, Comey said he wouldn't give that to him, that he would give him loyal service, but that his, that he, his oath was to the Constitution. And of course, the president couldn't tolerate that, you know. Um, <laughs> All that pesky constitution. But, you know, that, that is the ethos of an organized crime family. Um, the outside law doesn't count. The other norms of ethical conduct don't count. All that counts is your loyalty to the boss and the law of omerta, the law of silence. You mm -hmm. don't speak against the boss, and which explains why... There was such a fury directed at Michael Cohen that day. But, I, you know, I, I found that he was believable and um, he brought documentary evidence with him to demonstrate that the president had orchestrated this uh, cover up of the hush money payoffs to the porn uh, the actresses and the, you know, the various mistresses who they engaged in their um, catch and kill operation. Um, you know, all of it seems believable. None of it seems like anything you could fabricate if you wanted to. No. I mean, these are just... Why would you? These are everyday events in Trump world. Do you, so where do you see, from that Cohen hearing, what was your takeaway about where it goes? And what do you think the next step is? Well, um, you know, what we're attempting to do in the Judiciary Committee is to basically create different categories of misconduct. Some fall under the category of corruption. Now, when you say create, there are going to be those who are um, fans of the president. And I hate to interrupt you, but that word create to them means inventing something that doesn't exist. Oh, no. Then so explain. Me. I misspoke. What yeah. I meant was taking all of the factual evidence that's out there and putting them into three different piles. Okay. Basically, just putting them under three different headings. And what heading is corruption? including financial and political corruption, campaign finance violations, um, payoffs, conspiracy, and so on. Um, a second is the um, category of obstruction of justice, attempts to interfere with the Mueller investigation, attempts to um, sack different officials for not going along with the Trump agenda. Um, and the third is abuse of power more generally, for example, abuse of the pardon process. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, the some of our Republican friends like to say that the president's pardon power 
is unreviewable, which may or may not be true when you're talking about courts, but it's certainly not true when you're talking about Congress. If the president sold a pardon to take a clear case, if he said, you know, I'm going to give you a pardon for a million dollars, maybe the pardon could not be revoked. Um, However, he could be prosecuted. Certainly the president could be impeached if not if not uh, prosecuted uh, for doing it, um, and the president could be removed from office for doing that. It was clearly within the contemplation of the founders that this would be uh, a form of high crime and misdemeanor. This would be a form of official misconduct, a wrong committed by the president. And so your next set, you're, you're, you're taking and putting them in three piles. Do you anticipate additional hearings and additional witnesses, and are you going to then try to formulate a plan for impeachment either before or after the election? Well, impeachment's not part of it in the first instance. All we're really doing is fact-finding. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Remember, we come to the majority here after two years of the GOP majority doing no oversight over any of the scandalous information that's come out about the president. So they didn't do anything about the hush money payoffs. They didn't do anything about the abuse of the security clearance process. They didn't do anything about the emoluments clause and the president collecting payments from foreign princes and kings and governments at the Trump Hotel and the Trump Office Tower and the golf courses. They did nothing. So we're starting from scratch here. That's why um, Chairman Nadler had to send out more than 80 document requests. Um, so when the president this morning on the South Lawn, I asked him point blank if he would um, review the Mueller report and allow it to be seen. And he said he would allow it to be, he wanted everybody to see it as long as the AG said it was okay. But the question boiled down to with the Mueller report, will he at that point in time when that comes out do you think the, the, the president will be facing a very real possibility of an indictment? Do you think, and that's the one thing he doesn't want to answer. I don't know why. Well, the, the, <laughs> there are questions of law, there are questions of fact here. One question of law is, can the president be indicted? Now, there's, um, there's, and there's an opinion over at the Department of Justice um, apparently pronouncing no. Um, but whether or not the what do you think? Well, I, I would think you're the, a you're a constitutional scholar. I think the president has to be subject to criminal indictment. What if the president killed somebody? You know, to take the president's hypothetical, let's say he actually walked up to somebody in plain view on Fifth Avenue and shot them. Are we really saying the president couldn't be indicted for murder? In other words, that he would operate with impunity until he left. The White House? I mean, that doesn't, just doesn't seem right to me. So Doesn't seem right to me either. There's nothing in the text of the Constitution which makes the president um, uh, ineligible for criminal prosecution. Now, the question of whether or not um, he could be indicted and prosecuted um, is separate from when the prosecution takes place. Um, there could be an argument that, well, you know, if the president shot somebody— um, he would be subject to prosecution, but it would have to be postponed until after he left office. Which would be still, pretty damn quick, I would think. I mean, <laughs> you know, 
But of course, the, I mean, the case that Republicans used to love, Jones versus Clinton, stood for the proposition that nobody's above the law and the president can be subject to civil suit. If the president can be subject to civil suit, you think like, the president should be subject to criminal prosecution. Right. So, I mean, that, can you imagine so, a president shooting someone and then staying in office for another two years? Yeah, but so so that's my point that there's this question of law which is still out there. But who know? For all we know, um, Mueller ends up criminally indicting. Trump. He may say that that, you know, OLC opinion that's floating out around there is wrong. It was just a passing remark anyway. It was right. just dicta. Um, and that the president is going to be prosecuted for all we know. Now, it's also possible that they say the president can't be indicted or he could be indicted, but there's not enough evidence to indict. And they lay out a case there that could then be taken up by Congress as part of an oversight investigation or part of an impeachment investigation. One thing I try not to get carried away with are all the personal invectives that the president, you know, with Kellyanne Conway and her husband. I, I always think that that's blue smoke and mirror, and I don't want to touch on that. So if anybody's wondering, that's why. I'm not going to ask it, and I don't care. But what I do care about are some of the other things that he said this morning on the White House lawn, and one of them, uh, specifically in regards to Mueller, was he believes, and, and I want to hit that hard, could he overrule his AG if he wanted it to be public? Couldn't he just say, look, I'm the ultimate arbiter of this. Let it all be made public. Well, certainly that's the argument the administration's been making about everything else. They propound um, what they call the unitary executive theory, which is that the president is in direct personal control of everything that happens in the executive branch, including law enforcement. Now, right. that cuts against the tradition and norm that the president doesn't get involved directly in criminal prosecutions and investigations, but the president has been trampling that for a while. So I think, at least on their theory, he would have the power to do that. Well, aren't they rather arbitrary in how they... I mean, I find them to be arbitrary on on a number of levels, but particularly in how they dispense power. When it's convenient for him, he's the be-all and end-all. And when it's not convenient for him, it's the AG's fault. Is that fair from yours, from where you sit? Sure, but that's not even that original to Donald Trump, of course. No, and, no, no, and, it's and, not. You know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and in terms of the offenses of uh, this administration, hypocrisy has got to be one of the lesser ones. You know? <laughs> well, I'll go with you on that. <laughs> I don't think you won't find any argument for me on that one. <laughs> but all right, so let's talk a little bit about... Uh, well, we, the Democrats. Um, the, I, I look. I, I've heard it said that Republicans will hold their nose, and Democrats will eat their own. So the Republicans are holding their nose for this president because he's getting them the judges that they want, and he's making the moves that they want. So they they don't really think he's that religious or that evangelical, but they'll hold their nose and stick around for this guy. Meanwhile, the Democrats... That's got to be the understatement of the century, by the way, that Donald Trump is not that religious. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's how you define religion. But, yeah, that's, you know. yeah, that true that. Yeah. But the, the Democrats are so busy eating their own and, and hitting on each other that they want that perfect candidate, and they still don't understand how to defeat Donald Trump. Like, for example, why wouldn't the Democrats want Fox News to have one of their... <laughs> Debates. Why uh -huh. not? Why yeah. not? Why? Well, look. I mean, so everybody. What's wrong with you, Democrats? Everybody loves to beat up on the Democrats for being, you know, a 
uh, a wild, chaotic, unruly bunch. And, uh, you know, the, is that the, the, the joy? Well, the, the Republicans do, do work in lockstep. They've got yes, the authoritarian do. personality down. They fought, <laughs> you know, most of them hated Donald Trump. They called him everything during their primaries from, you know, a, a liar to a compulsive womanizer to oh, yeah. unfit for office. But the minute he got the nomination, they all fell in line. Yeah. And they've been uh, pretty much in lockstep behind him ever you know, since. And that's, that's um, go back. Remember Reagan. It was uh, Bush who said, you know, that trickle-down economics was voodoo economics. And as soon as he came in office and he became his VP, we didn't hear that anymore. So, I mean, that's, yeah. the, the Republicans have a long history of that. But it's gotten far more dramatic. I mean, remember. Scary. Trump said about Ted Cruz, I think, that his father had assassinated <laughs> President <laughs> Kennedy. Kennedy. <laughs> you know, he calls Marco little Marco. And. <laughs> you know, mocks and ridicules all of them, but they all turned around and became Trump supporters and still are. Lindsey Graham is frightening, isn't he? Yeah. But, um, so... That was look, a quick, the, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the Democrats are... You don't want to touch that one? <laughs> well, you know what? We are by nature much more free thinkers, and um, uh, the Democrats like to... Um, Democrats don't just say they like freedom. They really love freedom and they enjoy their freedom. And, you know, people are outspoken and they say their own thing and they do their own thing. But I will say this, in the final analysis, the Democrats know how to come together and win a fight. And we did it in 2018, where- Didn't do it in 2016 though, brother. Well, Hillary beat Trump by more than 3 million votes. And there are a lot of questions about that election. So don't get me started about the Russian propaganda and the Russian interference at the no, DNC I want to get you started. I want to get I mean, you know, I um, does that concern look. You? I, I, I mean, to me, it is. I think that the electoral college is now an invitation to strategic mischief uh, by the party that engages in strategic mischief. Two of the last five presidential elections have been won by the popular vote loser, George W. Bush in two thousand and Donald Trump. And I thought that was in a two thousand sixteen. Uh, and there were tremendous questions about what took place in both of those elections, which is why I introduced the National Popular Vote Plan in Maryland. Maryland became the first state to adopt it. We now have with Colorado, which joined up uh, yesterday, um, a dozen states in the District of Columbia, and we're more than halfway there in terms of building an interstate electoral college coalition where when the compact is activated, we will cast our electors for the winner in the national vote rather than the winner in our states. And we will thereby become a bridge to a national popular election. But the- Will that work? Because- I think it will work. Have... And, and I think it, we need to do it because the Republicans have been manipulating the Electoral College. Well, those who say we're going to get rid of the Electoral College don't seem to understand that it's not a switch that you pull. That, that's a constitutional amendment. That ain't going to happen overnight. Well, the National Popular Vote Plan gives us a way to do it through an interstate compact. And then it would lead us eventually to a constitutional amendment. But basically, the states are going to use their electoral college votes to um, build this coalition and say, we so won't cast words, our electors. So in other words, whoever, we won't cast our electors until the popular vote is done, and then our electors will be cast for the one who won the popular for vote. For whoever wins. And Makes it, sense. It only becomes active when 270 electors or more are in the coalition. So it's got to be effective every time. Obviously, we're not going to give our electors away 
um, unless it's going to be effective and it's going to work. Right. But at the moment, we have enough states in it. It should work. And it demonstrates there's mass popularity for the principle that the president should be elected by a popular vote the way that governors are elected. That you know who was a big proponent of that? Trump, until he got elected. You're right. <laughs> he, he used to be a big supporter of a national popular vote. Yeah. And even now, he admits that it's right, but somebody told him to say that you know, the founders were very wise in thinking about what they did. Of course, the, the electoral college system we have now has nothing to do with... The uh, reason why we got it. And with the framers' vision, in fact... Um, it's you know, contrary to the, the framers' They thought vision. the electoral college would be a deliberative body where people would get together and talk and pick the electors, and it's nothing like that now. It's just this automatic winner-take-all thing, except in Maine and Nebraska, where it's being done by congressional district. But it's none of it is any kind of actualization of the founders' vision. One of the frustrating things, and it just... I remember the Trump supporters who put up the map of the United States and go, here's all the red is where everybody voted for uh, Trump and blue is where everybody voted for Clinton. You see the majority of the country voted for for Trump. And that, that that's empty land. I mean, most, most of the people live in the cities and that doesn't reflect. In, in, but they use that as a justification for needing the Electoral College. Most states are for Trump. Yeah. How do you how do you appeal to the mindset that that says that? Well, the first thing is that the basic principle of democracy is one person, one vote, and every vote should count equally. That's why when we elect the president, your vote should be equal regardless of whether you live in South Carolina or North Carolina or Michigan or Texas or New York, California. Every vote should count equally. That's number one. Number two is under the electoral college system the way we've got it today. The election comes down to six or seven swing states. We know what they are. It's uh, Ohio. It's Florida. Um, it's uh, Nevada. There's a handful of them. Most of us live in states that are safely red, like Texas, or safely blue. Like Maryland. Like Maryland, or New York, or Hawaii. But aren't... Or red. And so, so most of the country is flyover country. The democracy is just not operating there. We don't have campaign ads. We don't have campaign rallies. We don't have campaign visits. They spend all their time in the swing states. It's just a completely arbitrary and foolish way to conduct an election. Well, doesn't gerrymandering bring some of that into bear, too? I mean, that's... Sure. I mean, it's I just equally read the Pennsylvania illogical. thing. Well, I'm proud in HR1, which the... Democrats passed two weeks ago. The first thing we did was to target gerrymandering to say there should be independent redistricting commissions in every state so the politicians stop choosing the voters before the voters get to choose the politicians. Yeah, the politicians shouldn't choose the voters. Yeah. So let's go with this. It's 2020, election eve. Who's Who do you think's there for the Democrats? Who do you want there? I want... Whoever is going to win the election, and uh, I mean that, you know, I I just want the strongest possible candidate. The gulf between our two parties is so vast right now that. But do you think the gulf between? I, I get that the I see the gulf between the two parties. I mean, I've seen senators not get on the same tram with each other down at the Capitol because one's a Democrat and one's a Republican. Yeah. I've seen that happen more than once. But I've got a lot of Republican friends. I mean the political gulf. I mean, they are in denial about the existence of climate change, which is the overarching threat of our times. It's going to destroy the future for our species. And they're pretending like it's not even real or they don't believe it's real. So we don't have that much time to educate them. We need to um, take control of the government back for the American people. Is the human race going to go extinct? 
Well, I, I don't believe that. I don't want to believe it, but it's going to be a question of political will and struggle to turn things around. Do we? But see, here's the thing that I, I go back to. I don't think that the divide is that great among the populace. I believe that most people share similar concerns, but they're driven into a corner right or left where the money is and where the loudest voices get heard. I mean, and they don't, we don't seek to find common interests, we seek to find divisive interests. I think there's some truth in that, but that kind of sounds a little bit like a pox on both your houses. I see it a little bit differently. I mean, well, as not, a Democrat, you would. 95% of the American people want there to be a universal criminal and mental background check on all gun purchases. You're right. And not just after a horrific uh, massacre like in Parkland, but just continuously, New Poland, everybody says you shouldn't be able to get a gun unless you can pass a criminal mental background check. And so we finally passed legislation to close the loopholes, the private gun show loophole, the Internet loophole. Um, and it's overwhelmingly along partisan lines. So despite the fact that almost everybody in America agrees, the vast majority of Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody agrees we should do this, but all the Democrats vote for it. All some the Republicans of, vote against it. Yeah, some, I think some of the Republicans voted for it, well, a handful of them. Who, but who contributes to the Republicans, but the I, NRA. But exactly, and I'm just saying, you know. Who contributes to the NRA, Russia? You know, I don't think that. Is that false? Yeah, no, but my point is, which is back to your original point, where it's sort of like, well, you've got one side that's contaminated by the NRA and another side that is, I don't know, presumably contaminated by the... Climate change scientists. The Brady <laughs> I mean, I, look, I do think the Democratic Party, as messy as our party is, and we got dozens of candidates for president and all that stuff, we are trying to do the right thing for the American people. We are trying to stand for the public interest. And to those people who say you're a liar, you're wrong, and that it's all about um, the deep state and the conspiracies and Ronald Reagan started it uh, standing up for us and Donald Trump is the greatest guy since you know Jesus came down and did the Sermon on the Mount what do you can you ever reach those people all I can do is reserve for them the deprogramming suite at the North Bethesda Marriott <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw in a couple of shots of bourbon maybe that'll help them out <laughs> I, I don't think it can reach them, do you? I don't. Well, you know. I think that 35%, all the polling, man, that is rock solid. Now, some of the moderates who voted for him because they just didn't like Hillary for some reason or another may abandon him. And he may not win this election. But right. My, I'm in there. And I'm telling you right now, I don't see a Democrat who's going to beat him yet. Yet. And I'll leave that open. All right. Well, you know, it's always hard to prognosticate where it's going to I'm go. I'm horrible but, at it. But I will tell you that, um, you know, within the ranks of these dozens of candidates, somebody is going to emerge as a very powerful consensus candidate to be the one to lead us into the future. And then I can guarantee and, you one I don't think it will be. John hmm. Delaney. I love John. He's, he's been on the road for a year, and he's still pulling under 1%. Well, it might be like I, the tortoise in the hair. You know yeah, that's that? I, I mean, I love John, but I'm like, hey, man. <laughs> out of the well, politics is a tough business, and you never know what's going to happen. That's the thing. You that's just never true. Know. You, do, you don't. Um, no one saw Obama coming. Yeah. So, no one saw Clinton coming. No one saw Kennedy coming. Right. So... Yeah. 
There, it is what it is. Um, we're, uh, I'm being paged here. Yes. Well, we are at, at the end of our time. And Jamie, look, I really do appreciate you doing this. At, at any time, you're always welcome to be here. You're totally my, my pleasure, Brian. <laughs> Thanks for the great work you're doing. And uh, generations to come will come to thank you for the work that you do over at the White House. And you'll have some great stories to tell your grandchildren one day, let's hope. Well, that'll be in August. I'm going to be a grandfather for the first time in August. Very nice. <laughs> well, thanks. And no, but I think generations will remember your work. I really do. I think you do a great job. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. I love you. Thank you, man. Thanks for coming. <laughs> and this is Just Ask the Question. Again, I'm your host, Brian Karam. Join us again next time.